Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is November 29th. Coming up on the end of the year here. It's slowing down, getting cold, at least up here. We're going to talk about bikes anyway. Deep off-season stuff today. There was a, a who's who ride in Monaco over the weekend with apparently every single major pro cyclist on earth. Talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about Egan Bernal and his his tour dreams. He spoke about that last week. And Van Aert's tour dreams. He spoke about that over the weekend as well. We've got a bunch of other little news tidbits for you. And then in today's Nerd Nugget, Ronan has written a very large book report on balance bikes. It's ironic that uh, writing about balance bikes has uh, thrown the rest of my work out completely out of balance. It's taken so much time for the last week or so. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, That's an excellent an excellent dad joke to kick off the balance bike segment, <laughs> I think. Yes. It, <laughs> As Abby shakes her head. If nothing else, it uh, proves my my credentials in, in, in taking to such a topic. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we've got we've got most of the crew here today. Obviously, Ronan, you just heard Ronan. Dan Cash, how are you today? I am good. It's it's uh, remarkably warm this week here in Boulder, like uh, seventy degrees, uh, 20, 22 degrees Celsius. So, considering it's almost December, I can't complain. That's pretty fantastic. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. that warm here. Abby, is it warmer you are? Yeah, it's actually pretty warm. I uh, rode my mountain bike yesterday for the first time in a while because it was so warm that I just couldn't not ride my mountain bike. I just got a new mountain bike. Me too. I'm very excited about it. Showed up while I was gone in the desert last week at the Grand Canyon. Uh, Yeah, I haven't ridden it yet. I'm going to ride it this afternoon, though. I'm very excited. What kind of mountain bike is it? Uh, It is a specialized Epic Evo. Hmm. And I'm pretty stoked about it, which also means that I need to sell my previous bike. Is this is this now a for sale classified section? Is this a classified <laughs> section of the podcast? We're gonna need you. Anyone needs for a that. size size large S3 specialized stump jumper Evo, upgraded lots of bits. It's got you know Saint brakes and a brand new 36 fork and all such sorts of good stuff. Hit me up on Twitter if you want it. <laughs> Make me an offer. All right, before we get into today's episode. We got to hear from Continental today. Now, of course, Shoddy is not here. Shoddy is in the process of moving again from, I think, honestly, back to where is he going? Somewhere near the Pyrenees, I guess. In the Basque country. Over on the other side of France. In the Basque country somewhere. Yeah. So, in his absence, the dulcet tones of Dane Cash will have to do. Dane, tell us about Continental today. Yeah. um, All right. Dulcet tones. Here we go. We know that Cycling Tips is all about road cycling with some gravel for good measure, and we've talked about Continental's road gravel and even urban tires quite a bit this year. But if you've been listening, you also know those are only part of Conti's bicycle tire range. Continental's German handmade mountain bike tires are built for every style, from cross-country to full downhill. It won't come as any surprise to regular listeners that their mountain bike tires also use Conti's famous black chili compound. But did you know that Conti mountain bike tires borrow tech from their world-famous car tires? Apex 
stabilizes the tire in turns, reduces puncture risk, and keeps the tires on your rims. It's a technology that makes sense for high volume bicycle tires. So next time you are picking out mountain bike tires, make sure to check out the full range on continental-tires.com. That's continental-tires.com. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring the podcast. And thanks to Dane for reading today's Continental ad. You did a great job. Well done. Let's get into today's episode. Now, we're going to kick off with some some lighter fare here. Abby, what what happened in Monaco over the weekend? I just saw lots of influencing and Instagrams and things like that. Yeah, Matteo Trentin and his wife put on a fundraising ride that raised money for the Princess Charlene of Monaco Foundation and the McKelly Scarponi Foundation, which might explain why there was like 40 of the pros in Monaco. Well, I mean, it might have been all of them, but all like a lot of pros, a lot of pros showed up for it. Uh, Lizzie Dagdon was there. She posted a very cute photo of her riding with her daughter on a bike next to her. Uh, Froome, Ewan, Thomas, Pogacar, Cabrelli, they were all there. And then there was a criterium as well. Um, I'm not sure. I think the two things are connected, but it was like an actual race. It wasn't like a joke race and uh, Roglic won. I don't think it was an actual race. <laughs> he said it was hard. <laughs> he said it was hard after the race. <laughs> Yeah, this probably hasn't ridden a bike in a month. That's probably why it was hard. You stuck me in a race right now. I would also say it was hard. Given that we're at the tail end of November, and from the photos I've seen, all the pros are fully decked out in winter kit, leg warmers, long sleeve jackets. Uh, it it sort of reminded me of a winter post tour crit, if that makes sense. <laughs> that's that's what the sport needs. The sport needs a series of of November post tour crits. Cycle cross, where we just called, like stick. <laughs> yeah but i don't i don't but then it's all muddy and you have to get off and run i i don't i no <laughs> i don't think so no go to go to like you know major cities and and do some post-tour crit action don't make me stay in the field no in the no, field. no 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 i veto this as the significant other of a professional cyclist they really don't need to leave home more than they already do let's just not mm. i'm vetoing that well maybe that desire just of do- yours <laughs> You just do it in each major sort of cyclist city, right? You just do one in Monaco, which is kind of Nice as well. You could do another one in Nice. Do a Girona one. Well, I mean, apparently if you want to put together a ride, a fundraising ride that has all of the top pros at it, you do it in Monaco because the turnout was very impressive. You could have Monaco, Girona, and Arscott in Belgium. That'd be the three places. You could have one in Andorra too. Andorra is like its own town. And then you'd get Pidcock and uh, Julian Alaphilippe. Those are the only two big ones I know about. Tom, Tom's. Tom's. Tom's Squinch. What? Tom's lives there. I don't Tom's. know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> the McKelly Scarponi Foundation is cool. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, this little news tidbit. This is back in. 2018 is when it was founded by Scarponi's family. Uh, those will, I think most of our listeners will recall that Scarponi was killed by a driver. Um, and the foundation works to basically improve drivers, make it so drivers 
uh, hit fewer cyclists, more like increased road safety and awareness of, of road safety issues and things like that. So a good, it was a good, uh, good place to put whatever cash was, was bundled up at this Monaco event, which I'm assuming they raised a fair amount given the, the size of the names that, that ended up showing up there over the weekend. But anyway, that's enough about a little bike ride in Monaco. We just thought that was interesting. There's some, uh, there's always, you always get like a couple interviews this time of year. The, the pros are coming out of hibernation where they refuse to talk to the press for a couple weeks, uh, which of course, Abby is their right. They don't have to talk to us, but we like it when they do. Anyway, they're coming out of hibernation right now. And we've heard from a couple relatively big names over the last week or so. And of course, the questions asked this time of year are, are you know, they're the big ones. They're, they're the, okay, you're about to kick off your training for the next season. What, what are your big goals? What do you want to do? Now, Dane, we heard from both Wavanart and Egan Bernal on their, their goals for next season. What, what do they say? What do they got coming? Well, Egan Bernal in an interview in Colombia said that he was planning to return to the Tour de France next year. He's he's eyeing the Tour. Uh, of course, Bernal won the Tour de France in 2019. Uh, he then had... He, basically, back issues have derailed the season since they, they derailed the season since then. Um, and then in 2021, he decided to target the Giro d'Italia, which he won. So I'd say that was a successful targeting. Um, he did not race the tour this year, though. And Ineos, the Ineos Grenadiers have, I think, uh, they, they've really gone into sort of a, uh, I don't want to say a rebuild because they're, they're, it's not like they're going to be bad for the next five years, like like happens with American sports teams that go into rebuild mode. They tank and they spend five years as just bad teams. That's not what's happening at any us at all. But they've definitely retooled their roster. Uh, and I think that that's made them. I think they've got bright hopes for the future. But this, you know, this past year at the Tour de France, they were not at the same level as as Pogacar by a long shot. I think they're hoping and, and I think Bernal is their best shot at taking him on. Uh, and he kind of confirmed what I think many people expected, which is that next year, uh, 2022, he is planning to race the tour again. Um, and that is going to be subject to the decisions of, you know, the Ineos brass. Obviously, he can't simply decide that he wants to go and and then go because of that team. There are other riders. They have what are they have four Grand Tour riders on that roster right now, uh, four Grand Tour winners on that roster right now. Uh, but it does seem like. This is what he wants to do, and I wouldn't imagine that they would uh, they would deny him this this wish, considering he probably is their best shot at a Tour de France victory. That was going to be my my next question: is Do we still think he's he's their best shot? I mean, he's still like what twenty two or twenty three? How old is he right now? He is twenty. He's twenty four. Twenty four. Twenty four. Uh, yeah, geriatric. Yeah, on his way to AARP. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, Gary Thomas actually is getting up there, and I and I think that this team, while they can probably do a podium with with a Richard Carpas, uh, I think Bernal re- still represents their best chance uh, at, at at the possible tour victory. I don't think he's going to be favored to beat Tadej Pogacar, but he's gonna, I think he's going to have a better chance than anybody else in that roster. 
if we think back to the, the tour this year, we're all sort of you know asking the question why why was Bernal not there? He was clearly their their best chance. Obviously, Carapaz came out with a, a podium and they end up, uh, which sort of saved the Ineos Grenadiers race. Um, but the the bigger question for me is I, I'm I'd be fairly certain Bernal has to go to the tour next year. But the bigger question for me is will they sort of get the sole leadership of the team or will they have to share it with Carapaz and Yates and maybe Sivakov and a couple of other, you know, big name writers. Even Garen Thomas is obviously going to want another crack at it. Uh, and, I, you know, we've seen this year the, was it the three or four or five or eight pronged attack that Ineos went with really didn't work out. And <laughs> um, so first of all, I think, you know, next year's tour despite only being 24, it could be a major pivotal moment in Bernal's career. And then secondly, you know, will, will any of us stick with that same same sort of tactic as we've seen not work this year? I think they'll probably still go with a multi-leader approach. And I think we have to remember that obviously it didn't work this year, but they also didn't have... I mean, they clearly were not the favorite this year. And I think that's one of the big problems with a multi-leader approach and drawing any conclusions from whether it works is that the teams that do it Almost always, I mean, there are very few exceptions here. Almost always, they don't have the best rider in the race. They're already not the favorite to win. Like when Movistar was going with the Trident all those years, they didn't have the top favorite. They didn't have the second favorite even for many of those years. Uh, So they already weren't like the favorite to win. It it would have been a surprise if they won. And I think that was the case with Ineos last year as well. Pogacar was so far ahead of of the field in terms of his favorite status, uh, except for maybe Roglic. But neither of those riders rides on, on Ineos. Um, that said, the two the two times I can think of the sort of multi-leader approach working in the past few years, it has been Team Sky. It was Garen Thomas winning when Chris Froome was also there as the sort of nominal leader. And it was Egan Bernal winning when Garen Thomas went in as the nominal leader, or at least they had co-leadership. So if anybody can do it, I think it's this team. But you're right. Like I mean, the, the only reason to do it is because you need something strange to happen to win the bike race. And I, I'm, I'm sort of talking specifically about like the movie star model, right? I, I'm still of the opinion that Ineos is a pretty good idea or sky back in the day had a pretty good idea who their, who their real leader was that whole time. And, and was very much, you know, if, if push had come to shove was going to, was going to end up riding for one person. And that one rider was going to be the one that ended up winning that bike race. Whereas the movie star sort of like send a guy up the road, try this, try that, try everything. You only do that when, when, like you say, you have no other option. When, when a straight mano a mano battle up Alpes is not going to end in your favor, or a uh, a time trial up Planche de Belfi is not going to end in your favor. When you know that the only way that you win the Tour de France is if something strange happens, that's when you just chuck everything at the wall. That's when you go with the the trident. The two didn't, the four didn't, the fork, I believe we called it uh, last year. Was it, the, was it the Ineos fork last year? Briefly, it was a fork, and then, yeah. That kind of confuses me, though, because you have fork in the road, which is only two. Mm, and that's a carving fork. fork. Which... It's a carving fork in the road. It's just we shorten it. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Interesting. Good to know. Anyway, I, I'm just agreeing with you because I'm, I'm agreeing with you, and I'm also sort of like, I don't know. We give Movistar a lot of stick, right? We we kind of laugh at their their ineptitude uh, tactically sometimes, but I'm not sure it's so much ineptitude tactically as it is. I mean, sometimes it is. There's no question that sometimes it is. It's it's just that they don't have the best rider in the race, and and now 
for the first time in a decade, Ineos is having to deal with that. And I'm very, yeah, I'm just very intrigued to see sort of what they what they really try to pull off next year. Because this year, to me, felt like they came into it knowing they weren't going to win the race and not even really trying, right? Like if you just send Richard Carapaz up against Tadej Pogacar, you just you're not actually really trying. And if you if you send Egan Bernal to the Giro, you're like, well, eh, we're not really trying to win this year. So I'm I'm interested to see what they what they pull out for next summer. Can, uh, can I take from that then that we don't believe Bernal can be the best rider in the race? Because if, I might get a lot of stick for this, but I am still to be convinced by Egan Bernal, despite having won a tour, you know, and as we said, you need something crazy to happen if you're going to, you know, play this in the US tactic at the moment. And that year we had a huge landslide that effectively canceled or uh, shortened the stage that he won the one on the tour. Uh, and in the Giro this year, he did have a couple of rocky days, if I remember right, and he wasn't up against the best of Grand Tour contenders. You know, Caruso, I think, finished second and, and Yates third. So, you know, with, with another year of, you know, back rehabilitation, do you think Bernal can go into next year's tour as potentially the best rider in the race? I, I don't think he will be the best rider in the race, even if he's healthy, because I think Pogacar is that, is that good. Uh, but I do, I do think that a healthy Bernal can actually make it a race. Um, you know, thinking back to his win, the year of, of yeah, the landslide, I think if there had been more stages in that race, it, he only would have extended his lead more. I think he just needed, like, the landslide, I don't, I don't think that helped him, really. I know that at the end of the day, Julian Alaphilippe was not pleased, and other people were not pleased because they had to stop riding, and who knows what, how it would have changed the race, but Egan Bernal was going to destroy everybody on those climbs, and he did. Alaphilippe he, was just going to lose more. Exactly. He was just going to get more dropped. And I, I think that a healthy Egan Bernal on the climbs actually really does have a pretty significant advantage on maybe all except Pogacar and Roglic. I, I think he really can hang with them, and he's not a bad time trialist. He's not... He's not a pure climber who can't do a TT, which we've seen a lot of in the past, uh, you know, where we, we had these big hopes about them and then they, they're, they're, you know, their dreams are dashed against the TT. I'm not saying he's going to, he, he'll definitely lose time to superstars like Pogaccio and Roglic who are really good at time trials. But I think Bernal, when he's healthy, I do believe can be up there. Um, I, I think he's a real contender. Uh, we'll, we'll see if he'll be healthy, though. That's the real question mark. I think his big chance next year lies in the cobbles and those more technical stages because we've seen in Paris in the past where you know he he can ride in, in echelons and and fight for position really well, and we know that perhaps Roglic isn't the best at that. So I I, I do think that those stages offer Bernal the best chance if he does go to the tour next year. Yeah, I think those are a really good opportunity for anybody who's not Roglic and Pogacar, or, or it's a good opportunity for Roglic and Pogacar to destroy the whole peloton. I think the whole point of adding those stages uh, from the ASO's perspective is to increase the potential for chaos, and that that alone does help really anybody in the race who's not Roglic and Pogacar, just because there's a chance that they might you know miss out on a split, whatever it might be. Um, all that said, those kinds of stages are also a great reason to have a second leader, and that's exactly what helped Team Sky win the Tour de France in 2018. Chris Froome crashed, uh, what was it, like the second stage, first stage? It was all kind of a blur, but he was at the back of the pack. He he went down, and all of a sudden, they they needed to have a second option. And, hey, Garen Thomas is here. That's great. And instead of sending him back to, you know, lose time intentionally and, and help Froome, they kept him in the peloton, and he went on 20 days later to win the race. And that kind of thing does come in. It comes in quite handy to have a second leader. 
it's worth remembering as well that it's really hard it's really hard to get through a Tour de France unscathed, like completely unscathed, right? I wrote a story. What was this like? This must have been five years ago. It was for Vela News back in, back in my Vela News days. And I went back like 30 or 40 years uh, and sort of barring Armstrong and a couple others, it, it's something like 20, 25% of sort of heavy favorites coming into the Tour de France end up not winning. And it's almost always because something happens to them. They crash, they get sick, doping positives, <laughs> so whatever whatever it is back in the day. So it's, it's a pretty high rate of attrition and it's the, it's a huge reason why it's so hard to win so many Tour de France's, right? Like Tours de France, I should say, because you, you just run up against these, this sort of just, just probability, right? This, the, the fact that you're going to fall down at some point, you're going to flat at a bad moment. You're going to get caught out in an echelon. You're going to, you know, fall on the cobblestones, whatever it's going to be. And the thing about about Pogaccio right now is like there is no plan B on that team at the moment. And so I think a lot of other teams are basically coming in. If if I'm if I'm Ineos, I'm basically coming in and saying, okay, well, if Bernal is perfect, if he is as fit as he can possibly ever be, if he is just, you know, come into this Tour de France as as, as ideally as possible, he can p- maybe challenge Pogaccio straight head to head in some of these key stages, right? But the really what I think they're probably kind of looking at is, is, well, if he has one issue, we think Bernal can be close enough to win this by grace, right? If he loses 90 seconds in a crosswind or 90 seconds on a cobble stage, we think Bernal can be close enough to, to win this by grace. And it, that's just sort of the reality of, of, of the superstar, right? Like this, it's the reality of having one rider who appears at the moment to be significantly better than pretty much everybody else that he's racing. But it's not really anything wrong with it, right? Because, like I said, I can't remember the exact stats. I'll have to go dig up the. I'll have to go dig up the story. Unfortunately, there's no bylines on old Velenu's stories anymore, so things are kind of hard to find. Anyway, I'll go dig it up. It was something like 25 percent of the last, you know, forty years of tours. The favorite had something happen to them that led them to not win the bike race, and that's a pretty high. That's a pretty high rate. Yeah, surprisingly, if you ride your bike for three weeks full gas around France crashes and illness and stuff can happen <laughs> even for five or ten days i mean if you look back at the 2014 tour if you're astana going into that race you probably i mean the rest of the world thinks you don't have a chance of winning because chris room is so much better than everybody else and alberto contador looked like the second best tour contender at that moment uh vincenzo nibli won the tour de france that year and it you know it helped a little bit that chris room crashed out on what the fifth stage and Contador on the 10th or 11th stage and then all of a sudden hey well we had the third favorite and now we have the favorite for the race and he won and that kind of thing does happen I think you're exactly right it, it pays to kind of go in with a plan just in case the Tadej Pogacar has some incident which happens actually pretty frequently I think we should shift off this topic We've talked about it enough we've got a long time before the Tour de France <laughs> we could probably come back to this one I think we have a couple of weeks between now and then uh, but final final question on this can Egan Bernal win next year's Tour de France? Do you think he will? Just a yes or no. You don't have to explain yourself. We've spent the last 15 minutes explaining ourselves. You just posited Is two questions. Win? Can he or will he? Will he? <laughs> Not can he. Will he? Is he going to win next year? I, I say no. Yes. Dane says no. Abby says yes. I think it's a Ryan? hard pick, but yeah. I say no. I'm, I'm just, I'm worried about Nairo Quintana vibes coming off of him, you know, just 
Now Rakitana never Keep won the Tour young. of France. Now Rakitana was never yeah, as good as Egan Bernal is. Yeah, he came close. He came close. I remember him duking it out with Froome up on two. He did. Too. He did. But he never day. really came close. I, I, I don't know. I feel like Bernal already was better, you know, in that one race than Quintana ever did at the Tour. Yeah. All right. That, like that's I said, a I'm not saying he's a I'm not saying he's, a, he's say. a replica. I'm just saying I'm getting vibes. <laughs> I'm get, I'm getting vibes. He's not going to win next year. He's not going to do it. That, I would like him I to. Agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I would like him to. I, I'm a big Egan Bernal fan. I love his Instagram account where he goes and like hangs out with his dog in his undies and like has cows and stuff. Huge fan. But he's not going to win the tour. <laughs> Moving on. I've got bad news, Kaylee. Uh, you wanted to move on from the tour, but our next topic it's 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 still tour related. All right. It's it's much easier to answer though. <laughs> it is much easier to answer. Moving on to another tour tangential story. Like I said, we heard, we heard from a bunch of big name riders in the last week or so. They're coming out of their of their media hibernation and talking to the press and talking about what they want to do next year. And in this case, Wavanert. What does Wavanert want to do next summer other than go to the beach? Well, uh, apparently at the the Kristallin Fietz Award in Belgium, uh, he spoke to the media, I think it was at Latsta News, and said that he wants to go for the green jersey at the Tour de France in 2022, which is, to me, that's great news because I think he should win the green jersey every year he puts his mind to it, and I, it's kind of a bummer that he hasn't put his mind to it really con- consistently. Um, I think he's like a shoe-in, and I think he is the perfect example of a rider who should win the green jersey, despite Kaylee's sentiment that it should only go to a boring sprinter who doesn't do anything on the non-sprint days. I think a rider like Van Aert is the absolutely the most deserving rider for the points jersey. And I think it's really cool that he wants to actually do it. The question mark is, does Yumbo Visma say, this sounds great, we will do this, or nah, we've got Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingago and we don't really care about the green jersey when yellow is a possibility. So we, whether or not Van Aert wants to do it, there's still the question of whether the, the team will kind of go along with it. But I think it's pretty cool that he's interested. I feel like he's paid his dues a little bit and, and deserves a crack at it. And I think that Yumbo Visma will recognize that and also recognize the fact that if they don't let him do this, he's going to leave at some point. Like he's, he's not going to want to go to the Tour de France every year and play domestique. Right. He's just even if he plays domestique and wins three stages, <laughs> it's he still he knows he can do more. And I think that at some point they will have to they will have to release the hounds and, and allow him to uh, to do his thing. Can I state the obvious for a second? The, the green jersey, as it currently stands, rewards consistency. You get points for consistency. Anybody who can get up in a sprint or, a, you know, high mountain stage or a time trial. Is going to get points consistently, and uh, yeah. <laughs> do, do I need to keep going here? Van Aert won a stage of each of those types at last year's last year's tour. Uh, you know, I think if, if he's given free reign to go for it, he's you know he's almost as as you know, given what we just said about Bernal and how unpredictable the tour can be, and how how much you know you do need luck on your side. Given it gets through it on unscathed, you'd have to think that. You know, he's he's almost un, unbeatable in, in the green jersey competition the way the way it currently the way it currently stands, and and then for me, that's a much safer bet than than Roglic or even Vinigo going for yellow in that. You know, I, I'm I'd be highly, uh, 
what's the right word to use here? I don't want, I want, I don't want to be too, uh, I don't want to be disrespectful in any way, but I just, you know, I, I, I'm not sure Roglic uh, really is going to get Throw himself. shade running. Hmm? Throw the shade. Throw it. Throw I, it. I'm not Throw it their direction. I'm not sure that Roglic can carry the yellow jersey onto the Champs-Élysées is basically what I'm trying to say. We, we, you know, we've seen him have a good go at it for, for two years and, you know, as as great a writer as he is, um, you know, he, he, I think he is very much like Bernal is relying on something uh, to scupper Pogacar's chances rather than really Roglic uh, uh, be, be the best writer in the race and... and you know, take the victory from everybody else. Yeah, I think if I'm making the plans over at Yumbo Visma, you know, the, the business perspective, the strategy perspective, I totally give Van Art free reign. I don't know that you need to divert any real resources to helping Van Art achieve this goal either. I, I, he can just do this on his own. I don't like you don't need to have a whole team built around him climbing, sprinting, whatever. He's going to get the points. Uh, and I don't think that really takes that much away from Roglic's chances. I think Roglic. If he's going to win the tour, I don't know that. I mean, Van Aert's an incredible domestique. He's been so helpful in the mountain stages. He's a big engine. But at the same time, if Roglic is the favorite to win the tour, it's probably because Pogacar's not there. And I think if Pogacar or something happens, I don't think Van Aert makes that big of a difference. Um, if you're the best rider in the race, I think you're probably going to win. You know, maybe if it's extremely close, they'll regret having put Van Aert on the green jersey. But otherwise, I think they can probably try for both, knowing that Van Aert's probably going to win green and maybe Roglic isn't going to win yellow. I think I think the bigger concern here for Jumbo Visma is probably risking Van Aert in the sprints and that because, you know, he's proved he can get through a whole tour uh, helping leaders, but yet still winning stages. He's done that two years in a row. But there is obviously the increased risk of, you know, putting one of your strongest riders into a bunch sprint every day to pick up points chasing a green jersey. And, and I think that's really the issue for the team. But um, the sort of, I, I think Jumbo Visma could have a real headache on their hands here because headache on their hands, headache on their head, maybe is a better way to say that. But uh, <laughs> they have a potential headache here because, you know, they've got Vinigo, who was second at last year's tour. They've got Roglic, who wants to go back and, you know, take the yellow jersey. And they've got Van Aert. And, I think you know they could find themselves very quickly going from all in for one uh, to having three sort of leaders all commanding a domestic each, and and all of a sudden they could go from you know being the most dominant team in the tour, even if they're not winning the overall, uh, to you know having having a a, a a tour like we've seen from from Ineos this year. Uh, so I, you know, far from me to decide where they go, but. I think it's, you know, they, they probably need to have conversations with their two GC men right now and say, you know, who's going to go to the tour? Who's going to go elsewhere? Uh, I, I don't see the room for three of those riders in the, in the team next year. What do they do with them on the cobble stage? Race to win. That, that, yeah, that's the question for me. Like, do you send them out the road to try to win and get green jersey points? Or do you leave them with, with Roglic? I feel like, like if you leave the... them with Roglic, you increase Roglic's chances of emerging unscathed by a small amount. Like, which is great. But I don't think it's worth it to scupper the chances of the guy who's probably the favorite to win the yep. stage and the green jersey. I I feel like Roglic is one of the riders that you actually don't have to worry about on the cobbles as much. I think he can he could probably handle himself a little bit, and he's still got a handful of other teammates to help him. But like, if, if he gets a flat, who do you want there Bye. to pull him back up? See ya. Let's go win the stage and the green jersey. Uh, we've got we've got seven other guys. I don't think they'll do that. <laughs> I think Van Aert's going to get the green light. 
I kind of agree they should, but I just don't. I don't think. Yeah, I think the the draw of the yellow jersey is such that teams make uh, illogical decisions around attempts to take it or protect it. Like even if they could, for example, get more press from Wolfenart well, winning a bunch of stages and taking the green jersey and whatever else. Even if like you know you do the impressions math and it's more valuable to the team to to let him go. I think the draw of the yellow jersey, like I said, is such that 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 teams they don't they don't make rational like you know let's do a real analysis here kind of decisions around that kind of thing. I think the real question though is like there, there's so many instances where. French teams are the ones that do this most often. You've seen it with Thibaut Pinot before, where a rider is clearly out of it, and the French team sends an honor guard back to like scupper the whole team's chances at the same time. And that I don't think Yumbo Visma is going to do that. <laughs> so if it's a matter of like, oh, Roglic has a flat, he's 20 seconds behind the peloton, he needs a small toe, maybe. Uh, but I don't think they're going to totally just like torpedo the teams, particularly not when they have Vingago in the squad as well. Uh, I think they're going to be a little more tact- tactical about it. And maybe not destroy the whole team's chances of doing anything for the rest of the race the way that a Groupama FDJ might do. I'll believe it when I see it. Can we move on from the tour for real this time? I think we can. We got a long time, like I said, before the tour happens. Plenty of time to talk about all this stuff, yammer our faces off. We had a couple other little news items. Abby, Lizzie Banks is head somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Lizzie Banks, who rides for Saratus at WNT, has been out pretty much the entire season from a nasty concussion she got at uh, Strata, so pretty early in the year. I believe it was Strata. It was a really early season uh, crash. And she is the first official signing for EF Education Tipco Silicon Valley Bank, the first that they've announced that will be on the new team. So... That's pretty exciting. It's great for Lizzie and a good get for them. Are there any other big names still floating around out there without a contract that we could see this team pick up? I mean, I I have to imagine that their budget has increased pretty dramatically from last year to this year, but maybe I'm wrong in that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, their budget has increased a lot and they are promising a men's world tour minimum to their riders as far as salary, but I don't think that they're going to, pick up any huge names. The only really big name that's still floating around without a team that we know of is Lisa Brenauer, um, who was one of the top riders this season. She didn't win a bunch, but she was just always there in time trials and sprints and uh, the classics and everything. But the real question here is what is going on with Saratus at WNT because they have no riders signed. They've lost their director and it's doesn't really look like they're going to have a team next year, although nothing's been announced. So most of their riders have left, but there's still Bren Hour is still kind of the big name of where will she where will she ride? Mm, that doesn't sound great. No, but it is what it is. It is what it is. Should we talk cross really briefly? Dane's so excited. Can I can I make a statement? Can I say that I don't actually dislike Cross as much as I pretend to on this podcast? People keep yelling at me in, on Twitter about this. And I just like, I'm just cross ambivalent. That's all I am. I don't Do actively people not understand it. your sarcasm. Is that, I think, is that what I think I'm they don't. I think, hearing. Yeah. 
I mean, it's not my favorite discipline of cycling. I'll admit that, but it's, I just don't care that much about it. It's just, eh. mm. Anyway, tell me about cross. One of you, someone say some cross things. All right. How about just a quick update? What happened over the weekend? There was a cross race in France. Best in song. Eli Isabet won the men's race. He's having a nice run. And Lucinda Brand, also having a nice run, won the women's race. So that's where the World Cup stood after this weekend. And then, unfortunately, uh, we got the news that the Antwerp round of the Cyclocross World Cup has been canceled uh, due to coronavirus concerns. So no racing in Antwerp, uh, which would have happened this coming weekend. And uh, we'll have to wait on... uh, the next round after that, I guess, which is a bit of a bummer, but that's where the cross world stands. Uh, Van Aert, Pidcock, Vanderpool, I think we're going to see them pretty soon. So keep your eyes peeled for whenever the racing does resume. That's that's the big story. Seeing those those three on the men's side uh, kind of taking on Elizabet and uh, Lars Vanderhaar has had a nice resurgence. Uh, but how will they do against a healthy and, and a fit in form trio of, of stars. They'll probably lose. That does seem like the, the <laughs> likeliest of outcomes. Probably. Dane skipped over like the best news that happened this weekend in the cross. And that was that Magali Rochette was second. Uh, the first non Dutch awesome. rider on a podium in 2021 cross. Well, like this, this, <laughs> I hate the cross season is so dumb. Okay. The, the, whatever this <laughs> section of the 2021, <laughs> cause you say 2021, that includes See? like wor- last year's worlds, but like, yeah, this, right. this current block of world cups. This season. Yeah. Yeah. That works. I, I was just, that I was, was just thinking about why this is not for the podcast. I was just, I was distracted because I was thinking like football, that's the way it always works. And I don't think about the crossover in years as a issue, but it is with uh, cyclocross. It gets a bit confusing, and I was just wondering why. Because in football, they don't change teams halfway through the mm. season. That's when it's true. January first. Yeah. Yes. Well, there, there, there is a January transfer window, so they they kind of do sometimes, but not. not I think Abby's talking about American football, and I think you're talking about not American football. I'm I'm talking about football, football. Yeah. Oh, I'm soccer, talking about American football. football. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I just recently discovered it. It's actually pretty exciting to watch. I didn't realize. You just American discovered football? American football? Yeah, like literally this week. <laughs> Who do you root for then? Who's what, your what, Yeah, what what did you thought was on television prior? Uh when you're like watching little dudes run around and throw the ball around. What did what did you think that was? I didn't watch it. I just didn't watch it. <laughs> I'm I, I we need to unpack this a little bit. How did you just discover football this week? Because <laughs> I, unbeknownst to me, my dad is apparently a huge football fan and he's been watching it all week. So I've like wandered back to the TV room to see what's going on. And the football was on and I can't remember which game it was. The Packers, Packers versus the, the Vikings. I want to say the Kraken. That's hockey. Um, and a completely <laughs> different city. <laughs> um but I, I think it was that game that was like super, super close and that they they went into overtime and I was really exciting. And I just root for anyone who's not Aaron Rodgers. 
non Aaron Rodgers. So you quickly teams. found football, and you've quickly found like teams to root or root for or against. That's impressive. How I don't really have What's a team, team to root for, but just to root against. Oh, just rooting against Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, he seems... <laughs> so you just watch all the all the Green Bay games and just root against him. Yeah, I'm finding it difficult to follow this conversation. <laughs> I have no idea what you're Runa, talking about. Runa, we can, Runa, we can talk about we can talk about the footy uh, as well. We can just start talking about you, you got your Manchester United mm. jersey. I, mean, on I was right just now. I was actually it was more yeah. difficult to follow as well because I was distracted again thinking about how in Ireland we can say football and refer to soccer or football and refer to Gaelic without differentiating between the two. But the people we're speaking to know which one you're referring to. So football is all encompassing. <laughs> Good podcast. Good second podcast. <laughs> we should everybody. just talk about. Uh, well, I think from from like early November until well, depending on whether the Tour Down Under is on until January or until March, we should just like change sports. We become a different sport podcast, and then the second comes back. And, you know. What if instead of instead of like Nerd Nugget, we just have like another whole segment on a random sport that we choose that that week? Yeah, you got to learn about American like someone, football. Like someone could explain cricket to me and why on earth that is a sport. That takes like five days. Ronan, can you explain? Don't in Ireland, don't you have sports where you like have to lift up logs and stuff like that as well? Uh, first of or all, that I, Scotland? I can't explain cricket. I did get I, I spent the winter in Australia and got sucked into it, but yeah, thankfully I, I got I got I got out again. Uh, but what I would much prefer to explain is is hurling. I think we need to introduce everybody to hurling. That's much What's, better. It's basically where you get a you big just hurl stick. things. No, you you've got a big stick and you've got a a ball that feels like it's made of concrete and you just yeah smash it at each other as hard as you can basically there there is there is much more to it and the the players are incredibly skilled but uh, it's apparently the fastest field sport game on the planet um wait so it's like it's like baseball with a concrete ball it's not actually concrete but it's about the same size as a as a baseball it's it's a little more like field heavy. hockey right ronan than, than like a than baseball uh, Except the ball is in the air a lot more than in field hockey. Yeah, like the ball is in the air all all the time, um, which seems dangerous for people's heads, especially when the people they're playing against have sticks to batter you with. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 the the thing that always just blows my mind is the goalkeepers because they literally just throw themselves at this speeding ball. Uh, you would have to imagine they've got very little chance of saving it, but they do save the shots quite often and they don't die which i find remarkable <laughs> <laughs> all right random sports tips podcast uh we're gonna pivot we're gonna pivot back toward bicycles here and today's nerd nugget but before we do we gotta hear from our good friends at rafa dane yes uh in 2018 rafa published the roadmap following a two-year research project that investigated how cycling could be made more exciting and more valuable. The recommendations in the roadmap guide all of Rafa's investments and have led to the launch of the Rafa Foundation, focused on the grassroots of the sport. Founded in 2019 with the mission of building a better future for cycling and cyclists, the Rafa Foundation funds organizations around the world committed to inspiring, empowering, and supporting the next generation of riders and racers. The Rafa Foundation invests 1.5 million U.S. dollars a year into grassroots organizations. Rafa recently announced their 2021 Rafa Foundation grantees, which include Black Girls Do Bike, Grow Cycling Foundation, 
Bear National Dev Team, and USA Cycling. For more info, visit rafa.cc. Thanks to Rafa for sponsoring the podcast. There's some additional Rafa news, actually. Uh, founder and CEO Simon Mottram stepped down as CEO. Was it last week, two weeks ago? Anyway, quite recently. Uh, and that that Rafa roadmap that, that Dane was just reading about, uh, we did a series of podcast episodes on the Rafa roadmap. You can search them in our podcast feed. I think they say Rafa Roadmap in the in the title, including somewhere we talked to Simon. Uh, we talked to Justin Williams and Dave Brailsford and Tiffany Cromwell and a whole bunch of interesting people. Go check those out. They're good episodes. And I don't know, a a little tip of the of the cap, a thank you to Simon Mottram. He's he's done a lot of good things for cycling. You you, however you may feel about Rafa. Uh, he built something pretty incredible and largely, I think, changed the way that cyclists dress for the better in general. We were pretty nasty <laughs> prior to that. Anyway, he's also just a very nice guy and a huge cycling fan. In fact, listens to this podcast pretty frequently. Uh, so if you're out there, Simon, thanks for listening. And uh Best of luck and whatever's next. I think he's sticking around and, and staying on the board of directors, but but is stepping down that and that from that CEO role. So changes afoot. Moving on, let's be honest. Simon didn't get through the bit about American football. He probably dropped off, got the hell out of there. <laughs> Ronan, you you've you've written uh, forty seven thousand words about balance bikes. Now, I think most of our listeners out there will already know what these are. They've seen some small child somewhere scooting around on these things. Uh, but what what led you to what led you to this this topic, Ronan? Good question. I have no idea. Did I assign it to you? Was that how you got led to this topic? <laughs> what <laughs> might be? What led me to this topic? Um, well, I, as you as you all probably know, I have a, a small person in the house uh, who is of balanced bike age. Um, and also coupled with the fact that I, before my cycling tips days, worked for Sustrans, the charity who make it easier for people to walk and cycle. Uh, part of my job with Sustrans was teaching kids how to cycle. Um, and we always found that uh, balance bikes really helped that process quite a bit. So naturally, I am very pro balance bike uh, and I wanted to sort of use the opportunity we have at the moment to to you know, see how my daughter feels about a number of different balance bikes and uh, sort of pass on some of the experiences that we had in this house and some of the experience that I have on what makes uh, for a good balance bike. And it differs from child to child, but, you know, some of the things to look out for, a bit of a buyer's guide into what to look for uh, if you are considering a balance bike. And we thought, given the time of year now, uh, there might be letters going to Santa, Santa might be inundated with requests for balance bikes and the good man himself might find this sort of article quite interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty detailed. So let's, let's run through some of the basics here. Obviously, if you want the full deep dive, you got to go over to cyclingtips.com. What a great website. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you want the full thing, got to head over there. Uh, but what's a couple uh, top tips for the balance bike buyer? What am I looking for? Well, well, 
I have an eight-month-old now. Seven-month-old, eight-month-old, almost eight-month-old. Pretty soon, going to be balance biking. Like, she's moving around, she's crawling, you know, climbs up on stuff. She's pretty close. So what should I be looking for for my daughter? That, balance bike. That you probably hit the nail on the head with the first thing to look for there is just age. Uh, and most bike balance bikes are sort of rated for you know anything from 18 months up to five or six years. Uh, what I have sort of determined is that you know, from you know, once 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 a child is comfortable walking, uh, they're probably old enough to get onto a balance bike. Where you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it into months, I would more so wait until they're they're up and walking and comfortable doing that. Uh, and then progress them onto a balance bike from there. But what I've sort of said is that anything from the age of four upwards and a balance bike, you need, you need to sort of question the long-term value of, of a balance bike when they get to that age because they're going to very quickly progress through uh, balance biking uh, into pedal biking, and at which point the balance bike becomes a bit sort of uh, surplus to requirements because you know once once they've got the hack of or the the knack of pedaling about they're not going to be so interested in the balance bike anymore quite often um and they're going to want that pinarello <laughs> for their fifth birthday <laughs> uh but what we what we did in schools was uh you know we mostly work with four five six seven year olds uh teach them how to cycle without stabilizers and the the first step we found was you know just avoid the stabilizers to start with where where possible uh, and then, you know, with a normal pedal bike, which is what we always ask the parents to bring in, we'd remove the pedals, you know, take them off each side, pretty pretty easy to do, uh, and drop the seat down as low as it goes. And you've effectively then converted a normal pedal, pedal bike into a balance bike. Half an hour with that a sort of adapted pedal bike, and the kids tended to have built up enough confidence and, you know, enough of the balance skill to progress them onto using a single pedal and then 10, 15 minutes after that we had them pedaling about and you know within a 45 or 50 minute session we would usually have if the group had seven or eight kids in it we would have at least five or six of them you know gone from having stabilizers or, or training wheels uh, on their bikes to pedaling on assisted in that short space so you know what that kind of says is that if you've got a child in that age range and you go out and buy, buy them a balanced bike, it could be a short-lived uh, period where, where they actually find any any benefit from it. And, and you could give them, you know, perhaps put the same money into an actual pedal bike and, and to uh, kill two birds with one stone or uh, get two bikes from one. So wait for your kid to start walking. And then that's a good time to get them on a on a Strider. Or, Strider was kind of the first one to make these, weren't they? Uh, but now there's a million different options out there. And then if you're if your kid's sort of already in that what you said four or five range, then maybe skip the yeah, you skip know, straight the, to a bike that can that can be pedaled. They'll, they'll still certainly enjoy a balanced bike, and you know there there are you know the, I have heard of scenarios where kids you know have got used to the pedal bike and maybe then had a fall or two and go back to the balance bike to build up the confidence again. So it's not that it'll be a waste a waste of time, but it's just, you know, if if you're thinking in terms of budget or, you know, you you, you don't want to buy a bike and a week later we're going out and buy another bike, uh, that that's sort of what I mean about it, adapting a, a normal kid's bike. Um, but, you know, once once they've got up to the walking age, they're, you know, they're, you think they're ready for a balance bike. Really after that, it's, it's size that's most important. And, you know, these balance bikes, they all look very similar uh you know they've 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 all got two wheels 
uh, a frame and a set of handlebars and you know usually they don't have uh pedals chain sprocket everything that makes a pedal bike that's what they're lacking so you know when you look at them they, they all look very similar um but they can differ in terms of size weight um you know there, there's there's a host of differences actually between them and those sorts of things can actually uh greatly affect how, how much the kid can enjoy it and, and really what you what you're aiming for here is is a good experience for the child uh if if they get off to sort of uh you know a nasty experience with a bike that's too big for them or a bike is too heavy it you know it can it can have a long-term effect and 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 putting them off cycling so you know you want you want to wait until they're ready and then start with a bike that that definitely fits them and and the sort of the the uh the rule of thumb is you know to measure the child's inseam with their shoes on standing against a wall uh, and take two inches off that inseam uh if that if that measurement that you've you've just got um, falls within the balanced bike's range of of saddle height, that you know is a good good place to start. What you would want to do then, where possible, you know, if you're buying a local shop or something, actually get the child to stand over the bike as well and just make sure they can reach the handlebars comfortably. They you know they're they're they you know they're they're a good fit for the bike. Uh, from there, you know, you should be off to. A, a pretty good start and you know just get them out into somewhere with plenty of space and uh open area that they can you know take their time and, and get used to it and uh be prepared to wherever you go carry the bike back with you because uh regardless of how used to it they get or how quickly they can get comfortable on the balance bike they can also quite quickly get uh, a bit a bit uh distracted or or you know move on to something else and you're left carrying the bike so keep that in mind as well <laughs> I know our uh, our colleague over at Pink Bike, uh, Brian Park, who's what editorial director over at Pink Bike. Uh, he was it two years ago purchased himself a three D printer and has been playing around with with printing things. And he printed like little mounts that the handlebars sit in that go on the back of his family's e bike, and so they can just blunk like plop the the balance bike on the back of the e-bike and kind of just like hangs off the back there. It's super cool. I, I've been meaning to hit him up and ask if he can make me some. Cause like I said, I see this in my future. Mm. Yeah, you know, they're obviously, Imminent. obviously as cycling fans that, you know, we're, we're all going to be inclined to, to get our kids bikes, but you know, just, and, and obviously our, our, our audience here is going to be similarly minded. Uh, but in terms of actual development as well, that, you know, balance bikes are, you know, great for developing balance, surprisingly, uh, and also just you know, sort of motor skills and 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 even just confidence in that. Uh, also great for you know, getting getting out and getting a bit of fresh air and exercise and that. So they're you know they're they they're seen as a stepping stone to cycling, but they actually have uh, quite a quite a number of benefits. There you have it. Go check out Ronan's story on balance bikes. It's a twenty-two minute read, apparently. <laughs> what I should say is that you can sort of, you know, there, there's there's a review section at the end of it, a bit, a bit of a group test with a number of bikes in there. You can, uh, what, I, what I tried to do was rather than have a sort of bike shootout, I took a, a number of um, bikes from sort of different categories. So like, uh, you know, a standard sort of balance bike, uh, a really uh, budget friendly balance bike, a carbon balance bike, and then... Ooh. Some of these balance bikes get very, very toy-like. Uh, so I got a couple of those in as well. 
to see how how they went. And uh, admittedly, you know, in our in our um, very scientific test that we did here, we had an n equal to one uh, because we only had one subject testing the bikes. But uh, there were some good lessons learned from that, nevertheless. Go check it out. All right. Once again, we've turned an off season podcast into an hour. We we have a special ability. Well, I guess it depends. Depends whether Mal decides to cut out the random bits about various types of football, which I would advocate for him leaving in. Honestly, Mal's our, our editor. Uh, Mal, leave that in there. It's great. That's it from us this week. Uh, go check out the Nerd Alert podcast. There's another one coming this week. Go check out Freewheeling. Make sure you subscribe to this one. Maybe share it with a friend. And we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. See you.